Pop Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics, Episode 4, Legends of the DC Universe. Hello and welcome to the fourth part of the podcast miniseries, 80 Years of DC Comics, presented by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and the purpose of these 12 episodes is to showcase comic books and comic book genres that DC Comics has produced in its 80-year history, but are not as recognizable or celebrated as their superhero stories or are stories to end up on a top 10 list. Last time around, I took a look at action-adventure comics. This time around, as part of a huge podcast crossover with the Lantern cast, I will be stepping back into the superhero genre with a look at Legends of the DC Universe number 18, which features the new Teen Titans. Just to give you a little bit of background on this podcast crossover, a little while ago, Chad Bogleman contacted me and several other podcasters, and I have to thank Michael Bailey uh, for this as well, to ask if they were interested in looking at different issues of the series for a huge crossover that he and the Lantern cast have been have going in April. Mike recommended me for the new Teen Titans because of my long history of blogging and podcasting about the team, so I dug this issue out of my collection and read it and decided to make it part of this miniseries, because while it does feature superheroes, and I've, you know, been kind of straying away from superheroes it isn't an issue that's on a top 10 list or anything and also ties into my all-time favorite comic book series so that's what i'll be covering after this short break Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Daikaiju. 
Legends of the DC Universe, if you're not familiar with the title, was a book that ran in the late 1990s and early 2000s and featured stories that were set in the pasts of various characters and titles of the DCU. In many cases, it gave its audiences adventures with characters who hadn't been seen very much or were past versions of characters that were currently being published. In some cases, like this one, it filled in the backstory concerning certain characters or events. This story is called Conflicting Emotions, and it was published in Legends of the DC Universe number 18, which came out on May 12, 1999, with a July 1999 cover date. This was, incidentally, three days before I graduated college, although I know I got this when it came out because I had it waiting for me in my LCS back home when I returned from Baltimore. Anyway, the cover price in the issue is $1.99. The cover, which is by Michael Kaluta, shows Raven and Kid Flash embracing while behind them Trigon looms over them and it looks like he's holding some sort of sword upside down and ravens are flying by him. I guess it's supposed to show the danger of whatever connection is between them and it's honestly way too busy and the two of them look stiff. I would have loved to see what Butch Geis, who does the interior art on the book, uh, could have done with the cover or perhaps someone else whose style was a little more fluid. Our story was written by Marv Wolfman. The art was by Butch Geis. Clem Robbins was the letterer. Chris Chuckery handled the colors and separations. Maureen McTeague was the associate editor. Your editor was Eddie Berganza. Raven was created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. We begin at another time in another place. A young girl named Raven is now 13, and a group of cloaked old men is telling her to pay attention to control her emotions because this is a time in her life when controlling these emotions is going to be essential. She says that she can't do it. They confuse her and they don't have time to, they don't have to remind her that giving into her emotions will result in Trigon, her demon father being unleashed upon the world. She runs away and continues to monologue, wondering why she won't be able to express anything emotional and calling up upon her goddess Azar to help her because she has so many questions. She's suffering because of the coming of her womanhood and all of the terrible thoughts she's been having. At night, she dreams of horror and laughter, and the emotions hurt her. Moreover, she doesn't understand why she can't fight Trigon and why she has to suffer the way she does. Azar does not answer, so she heads to Earth where she shows up in the middle of what looks like Times Square and is overwhelmed by all the emotions that she sees. Raven is an empath, the narration reminds us, a conduit for emotions she is not allowed to experience for herself. She has just been plucked out of Eden to be abruptly dropped into the deepest, most excruciating level of hell. Human emotions rip through her like a cyclone, tearing into her every crevice, her every pore. She's frozen in a moment of time-lost anger, an inlet helpless in a tsunami of raw, unfiltered passions. Her brain shuts down, then suddenly ignites. A million synapses close, then rip open again. Stop the pain. Stop it now. Stop it. Stop, stop everything. Again and again, the emotions claw at her, scream at her. The pain overwhelms her. Raven collapses on the street, and her mother, Orella, shows up and brings her back to Azareth, where she remains unconscious for what Arella says is seven passings. She soon wakes up and lessons begin again. Months pass and we are now in Blue Valley where Kid Flash is rescuing people from a burning building and then returns to school to find his girlfriend Natasha kissing his friend Paul. They can't see him because he's traveling at super speed 
So he hears them talking about how they've been sneaking around behind Wally's back, and it's because Wally's never around anyway, and it seems like he's checked out of him and Talia's French relationship. They walk away, and Wally stops, telling nobody in particular that it's not that. It's just that he's Kid Flash, and he has so much he has to do, and that he needs her. Back in Azeroth, Raven hears Trigon saying he's coming. She goes to the priest to tell them that Trigon is coming, and they tell her to go away and come back tomorrow because they are meditating. She insists that tomorrow may be too late, but they still blow her off. And she says there are heroes on Earth, and she will get help from them. The world, she says, will be saved with or without them. Back in Blue Valley, Wally confronts his friends. He tells Paul they have nothing to talk about anymore and then demands that Natalia explain herself. She says that he was never honest with her. He was never around her, and that means they can never have a real relationship. He pleads with her that she doesn't understand and later that night tosses in his sleep saying that she can't possibly understand. As he tosses and turns, Raven sits in his bedroom and wonders if the emotion she is currently experiencing is love. It's overwhelming and painful. She's drawn to him and he is in so much pain. The feelings that she has are confusing and she doesn't know what to do. She feels for him and realizes that she can't stay, so she leaves. Just then, Wally wakes up and asks if someone is there. He then spots a picture of him, Paul, and Natalia, and he loses it. He puts on his costume and he runs, screaming about how she was his girlfriend and it's not fair. He foils a bank robbery and then just starts running across the ocean through Paris and into the Himalayas, where he finally stops somewhere on the side of a mountain and allows himself to sink in the snow, saying that he doesn't want to feel all this pain anymore. He doesn't want to feel anything anymore. Moments pass. Raven is now at his side and wonders aloud why love hurts so much. She wakes him and warms him up by a fire. They talk and during their conversation they discover that they have a lot in common. Nobody seems to understand them and they both feel very alone. Wally makes a move to kiss her. and She lowers her head, saying that they should descend the mountain because they can't hide there their whole lives. He agrees and goes to move but his leg is frozen and hurts. Raven uses, her, her, Raven uses her healing powers to help, and they go down the mountain together. When they reach the bottom, he says, You still haven't told me your name. You'll learn it soon enough, she says, while starting to teleport away, and then says, Forget. Next thing Wally knows is that he's standing in the cold and has no idea how he got there. He concludes that he must have been running in his sleep and decides to head home and get his priorities straight. Back in Blue Valley, 72 hours later, Wally, while struggling with his calculus homework, receives a call from Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Robin, about reforming the Teen Titans. Wally says that he's quit the hero biz and says goodbye. Dick tells Raven that it's a no-go, and Raven says she'll take care of it. She teleports to Blue Valley, telling Wally that he can be both man and the hero, and that his weakness is not who he is, but what he makes of himself. He asks her if he knows her, if they've met before, and she enigmatically replies, You will, Wallace. You will. If you want to know the state of the Titans when this issue was published, this came out the same month as the Titans number five, which is the beginning of the series that was written by Devin Grayson and had art by Mark Buckingham. That book has a bit of a mixed legacy because it had a pretty hot start, but fizzled rather quickly, mainly because Grayson's stories were a bit too thin in parts. And then the run by Jay Fairbair that came after her departure from the book with issue 21 was beset by editorial meddling, which resulted in some purely awful storylines. 
But this was at a time of a possible Titans renaissance. After a period in the mid-1990s where the new Titans fell apart in the Teen Titans series created by Dan Jurgens, while a good book just didn't click with audiences, this title, at least at its beginning, was a sign that better times were ahead. Plus, you finally had more of an appreciation for the Marv Wolfman George Perez new Teen Titans as that book was coming up on its 20th anniversary. The first iteration of the cartoon would be about four years away, but the team was clearly out of the doldrums of its recent years. Wolfman and Perez themselves actually gotten on some of the action, as special issues like, like the Titans 25th issue would allow them to do a quick reteaming, and there would be new Teen Titans stories written by Wolfman in this issue of Legends of the DC Universe, and the Legends of the DCU 80-page giant from a year earlier, which was written by Wolfman, plotted by Perez, penciled by Phil Jimenez, and inked by longtime Titans inker Romeo Tangal. That, by the way, is called The Secret Origin of the New Teen Titans and is worth tracking down. Here, we have another pre-New Teen Titans number one story. In fact, the events at the very end of the book where Raven is talking to Dick Grayson and then goes to see Wally are more or less from New Teen Titans number one. It's specifically about Kid Flash and Raven. I've already given my mixed review of the cover by Michael Kaluta, so I'll dive right into the issue. A quick note, I'm pretty sure I said that um, Raven was 13 at the beginning of my synopsis, and I double-checked the issue. She's 15, which makes a little bit more sense concerning the ages of the other characters. But anyway... That out of the way, first off, one of the big reasons I like this story is because it fills in something I've actually always wanted to know about the beginning of the team, and that is why it seemed that Kid Flash fell for Raven so early on, and then turned on her when she revealed that she was manipulating him and most of the team, and then seemed to struggle with his feelings for her all the way up until her death in the Trigon Saga at the beginning of the Baxter series. While I'm not a huge fan of the let's see how it all started prequel story, what this does, though, is both inform why Kid Flash seemed to fall for Raven so easily, and it also gives us a little bit of the extent of Raven's manipulation of the team. This is Raven in her original version, who was not the dry, cynical character you see on the cartoons, but was the incredibly angsty daughter of Trigon, who was the only person able to save the world from his possible domination. It was not one of the better traits of the character, and quite a number of the fans could tell you that Raven's constant angsting about Trigon is something that got dragged out and pretty annoying over time. I will admit that it, it could get a little bit tired, but I'm also one of those people who actually liked the looming threat of Trigon through the series. Then again, I didn't read the Wolfman Perez issues as they came out, so I'm not really one who can speak to that. Wolfman shows that he has a good handle on the character that he created. The dialogue sounds like classic Raven, and right away we get her most important struggle with her conflict over her emotions, specifically the fact that she cannot give in to her emotions or else it will result in her father coming and trying to take over the world. I will say, though, there are portions of the first few pages of this where it's some of the script seems as if Raven is, well... It seems like at some point in the near future, Raven and Orella will be having this conversation. Mom, mm -hmm. I've got to ask you something real personal. Mm -hmm. Do you douche? I sure do. But only with Massimville vinegar and water. Why Massimville vinegar and water? That's what my doctor recommends. For a naturally fresh feeling, only Massimville has two vinegar and water douches. 
pure, extra mild, and extra cleansing when you need it. You'll see how clean and fresh Massengo makes you feel. Massengo, trusted by more women than any other brand. The scene where she winds up in Times Square is done very well, though, as is the idea that she's drawn to Wally's angst, which seems to match her level, and I guess that's why she's drawn to him. Wally was the guy on the team who I guess was the most normal, quote-unquote, out of all of them when you think of it. He had both parents. He lived in Blue Valley, which I guess was your typical suburb. So unlike Dick, who was the ward of a billionaire, Wally had a very ordinary civilian life. Unfortunately, this ordinary civilian life does not mesh well with being Kid Flash, and the other people in his life aren't exactly going to wait around for him. It's very Marvel when you really think about it, and... It's a conflict that just about anyone can have, though, especially if they're overwhelmed with their schedule or they're married to their job or whatever. Now, his reaction is a little over top, and obviously it's all to get him to run around the world to the mountains so they can see Raven, a place that's completely isolated, but, you know, it works. And after all, Wally's a teenage superhero, and you'd think a freakout of his would wind up involving his powers. By the way, the fact that he follows a bank robbery while running around all angry and angsty is really nice. It's a nice little touch on Wolfman's part. The story, of course, ends with it was all a dream. Kid Flash forgets because Raven makes him forget, you know, and never reveals that they were on a mountaintop, never reveals that they made a connection. Which helps it fit nicely into the already established continuity. You get the sense that she's reached some sort of deeper understanding of her emotions as a result, too. All in all, Wolfman writes a nice, tight story that doesn't undo anything he's already done, isn't required reading if you're trying to read his run on New Teen Titans from start to end, but at least fits nicely as a prelude or a supplement. Now let's talk about Butch Geis' art. I first discovered his artwork back in the early 1990s when he was still being credited as Jackson Geis and was penciling action comics during a Doomsday Funeral for a Friend, Reign of the Superman. His pencils were always gorgeous. They brought with him a real sophistication, a realism, something like that. It's not like other artists on Superman at the time were bad because they were all very good. It's just that Geis always stood out to me because aside from the Superman books, everything else I was seeing seemed to be overly 90s. And back in like you know ninety two ninety three when he was when he was on the Superbooks, that was um, a nice refreshing thing to see. In this book, for the most part, uh, the art is amazing. And as much as that's Geis, I give credit to Chris Chuckery's colors and separations. The artwork has a painted look to it that doesn't always work because some artists' uh, work does not mesh well with that coloring style. Geis's does though, and it's stunning. He gets the chaotic atmosphere of Azareth down perfectly. Her moments in Times Square vividly reflect Wolfman's script of emotional chaos. Likewise, her face, his facial expressions on both Wally and Raven do a good job at expressing the range of emotions both of them go through. I guess that if there's any complaint that I have about the art, it's that there are times when Raven looks a little too old. She's supposed to be 15, and there are times when she looks like she might be in her 20s. Now, I know that Raven always looked a little bit older than her age, and I know she's half-human, so that explains some of her appearance, but there are times when I wish Geist drew her with a little more innocence, especially at the beginning of you know, her grappling with her oncoming womanhood. 
That being said, the scenes where Wally encounters Raven in the mountains are drawn beautifully. Geist managed to manages to imbue her with a tenderness that even George Perez rarely did, especially in the later part of his run of the book when he was giving her a very, very hard look, almost a maleficent sort of look, because she was constantly serious. Raven in these pages still has a significant amount of innocence and Although she fears what is looming on the horizon very soon, she also has not had the chance to experience that and see how that mission is going to affect her life. You forget sometimes with the Teen Titans that they're still very much kids when this all starts, and as much as that book is about them saving the city and saving the world, it's also about them discovering the world as young adults. Those characters wind up going through so much during Wolfman's 16 years as their writer that it's nice to be reminded that they weren't that experienced when they started, and that people like Raven, who was basically raised in isolation, still had a lot to learn. This book hasn't been reprinted in any trade. A quick check of eBay shows that you can get it easily for under $2. So that means it might be in your cheapy bin at your local comic shop. Comixology also has it if you're looking for it. Right now, at least of this recording of this episode, it's up there for $1.99, so it's readily available anywhere. I highly recommend that you go check it out. I will be back in May with my next episode and my coverage of 80 years of DC Comics, and this one will be a special all-gorilla episode. That's right. I say gorillas. Until then... Thanks for listening, and take care. Thank you for listening to 80 Years of DC Comics, a podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and Two True Freaks. All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics. And since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics. Never give up.